Well, let me, uh, let me start by just, just recalling um, the three marks of, of or the three characteristics of our experience. Uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or anatta, um, which is, which is uh, the basis for this series. Uh, anicca, and, and the char- these are characteristics, often they're described as characteristics of existence, if we're talking about objective, uh, the objective side. I think of it almost more in terms of characteristics of our experience, which is more the subjective side. But in any case, anicca, is the Pali word for impermanence. And we pretty much all get the notion that things are impermanent. Dukkha is the, is the Pali word for... for dukkha. It's <laughs> for um, unsatisfactoriness. It's, it's the quality of our experience that just is not how we would have written it if we were writing the script. It's the it's and and uh, and we get that 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 there is dissatisfaction if not suffering in life it comes with a territory. Anatta we just don't get. I mean really it's the one we don't we don't even know what to call it not self no self empty self uh, we just don't know. Um, the reason the, the the title for the talk uh, when when Shaila asked me to talk about emptiness and I thought of anatta I I recalled the. Uh, a cartoon in the New Yorker where the the drunk is coming into the bar and he's saying to the bartender, "Do you have any idea who I think I am?" <laughs> and you know, it's so so that's that's where the the uh, the title of this comes from. But the, the concept of anatta is interesting. Where it started, it's it and and not self. We'll we'll get to we'll, we'll get into that in some depth. But the origin of the concept is, comes from the Buddhist time, uh, the Brahmanical tr- uh, tradition of the time. Um, the philosophy was that there was an underlying unity to all existence, all creation. There was a oneness to all things. Uh, maybe it was a spiritual oneness, maybe it was manifested physically, but we are all one. That's n- not the Buddha's notion, it's the, it's the Hindu notion or the Brahmanical notion. And that as part of this oneness of all things, each of us has within us a spark of that divine, whatever it is, you know, which is the Atman. So Brahman is the spirit of all things, and Atman is the, the piece of Brahman that is, that is within us. Um, so you could look inward or outward, and you would see the same thing. That was how, how the Brahmins saw it. The Buddha said, anatta, no atman. Buddha was, was definitely on, on the notion, on, on the, with the idea that atman is not, is not. Um, you know. So we want, to, we, we want to figure out what, what in the world is he talking about because, you know, my, my teacher Sylvia Borstein said when she first heard the three characteristics of, of experience, she thought, well, two out of three is not bad, but I know I'm here. You know? um, otherwise, you got the Anicca and the Dukkha. What I want to point out at this point is the, the importance of the language we use 
uh, to formulate our understanding. And when we talk about emptiness or anatta, it's the heart of the issue is with our use of language. And often we think that, you know, we, we think in terms of, I can't put this into words, it's indescribable, it's, be, you know, it's ineffable somehow. <clears throat> but the idea is that we do formulate our understanding in terms of uh, concepts, in terms of language, and some concepts, well, if I say all things are permanent, that's not so helpful. You know, I mean, you, you could actually even say it's wrong view, whereas right view is anicca. So it's important the language we use, but um, the language is, in, in Zen they say it's like a finger pointing at the moon. Language is pointing at experience. The, the, you know, it's, um, we use a word, mother. The word mother is not your mother. But it's also an experience. You experience the word and we can be reactive to it. So the word is both a finger pointing at the moon and in a way it's also, in some way, moon as well. The language is part of the landscape of our experience. And so if the, the symbols that we are using to point to our experience are pointing in the wrong direction, like you want to be happy, try to you know, chase what you want, you know, spend your time trying to maximize pleasant experience, that's what will make you, you know, that's, that's not going to be so helpful. But the trick is that language can also be delusional if we're, if we're paying more attention to the finger than to the moon. In Zen they say, you know, if, you, if Zen is a finger pointing to the moon, or language is a finger pointing to the moon, the Dharma is a finger pointing at the moon. But if you mistake the finger for the moon, um, what, what, what good is it? So the trick with language is that there's a lot of potential for delusion in language. And the big part is that we mistake the finger for the moon. And, and, and the real problem is that we have a language that's full of nouns. And our ex and experience or existence has no nouns in it. There are no nouns. There are no things. The notion of anicca, of impermanence, means that anything that we see is in transition. Now, some things happen really quickly. Subatomic things that all I, all I can think of is cloud chambers, but it's not cloud chambers anymore, is it? It's it's what? Subatomic, whatever. What do you call those machines? Sorry. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Cloud chambers is, that really dates me. But those things, you know, subatomic, they, they show up for trillionths of a second and disappear. They, you know, that's impermanence with a vengeance. And then there are some things that last a little longer, you know, uh, some life forms that arise and pass very quickly. Then there's, there's us, there's things that last longer, to the point where you get galaxies that take 100 million years to, to uh, spiral once, and the, the cosmos is, what, 13 point something billion, you know, in the arising phase. So 
but everything is in transition. The chemistry in our bodies and everything is embedded in everything else. Okay, so the chemistry in our bodies is dependent on the biosphere. The biosphere depends on the relationship of the, of the Earth to the Sun, and the Sun to the galaxy, and on to the Big Bang. There's no separation uh, here. Any separation is conceptual. You can see how nouns can be misleading if you look at what's called a nominal uh, and now something like accident. An accident isn't a thing. You could say this is a pen, but really 50 years ago the molecules in this weren't a pen. And in another, I don't know, this is probably not biodegradable so it could hang around for a while. You know, it's some sort of resin and so, you know. But you can see that at some point it's not going to be a pen anymore. So even though it looks like a pen, it's in transition. As, as, as are we. The word accident describes a process, something that happens over a period of time, but we turn it into a noun, into a thing. And it's true for any thing. Any thing is really just a label that we attach. It's we use the noun to point at experience, but the experience is anicca. It is impermanent. It is in, in transition. It is, uh, and because there is nothing, the Buddha said, that is outside of this impermanent experience that we're all in the midst of, well, there are no things. There is only process. And the process unfolds constantly, continually without interruption. Change is, is, is the only... So there is no... Because there's no thing, there's a Zen koan which just goes, unthing. There's no thing. All of these nouns, what... what what emptiness means is this is empty of any essential thingness. It's empty of an identity. We can put an identity on it. We can project an identity on it. Bell. Well, this was clearly not a bell a hundred years ago. It was, you know, in some kind of ore and, you know, and, and you can see how this can be melted down and changed into something else. It has no essential, it's not an entity. It's just in process. And so you would say this bell is empty of essence. It's empty of entityness. It's empty of self. And the delusion comes when we reify. The word reify means that we place the, the reality in the concept and not in the experience. And these concepts themselves arise and pass as well. So any noun arises and passes. You know, if I, if I ask you to think of an equilateral triangle, which you just did, <laughs> was that the same equilateral triangle that you thought of the last time you thought of one? Or, you know, 
I mean, we're, we're sort of bathed in platonic mm, fallout. So we sort of think that, you know, for something to be real, it has to be permanent. And there's this, you know, this realm of forms, there's, you know, but, but really not. Just this impermanence. Emptiness is the flip side of anicca. So any label that we attach is just like a finger pointing at the moon. And we can't assume that just because that finger is a noun, that what it's pointing at is a thing. And that's pretty much all emptiness is. Empty of any essential nature, empty of... It's not separate. Some people feel more comfortable thinking, you know, there's no such thing as a fixed self. Well, that's okay, as long as there's a self. You know, you can... <laughs> So it's sort of, sort of what we do, you know. No, no permanent self. Well, okay, I'll take uh, temporarily permanent. You know. um, we, we really, we, we really cling, cling to the notion of, of self. But emptiness is pretty simple. It just means that there is no essence, there is no... You know, it, everything is just process. And it leads to a kind of, is, it, is that relatively clear? I mean, emptiness is really pretty simple when it comes down to it. Any noun is empty of essence, because our experience is not. I guess I already said that. So come, there's a, please feel free to interrupt if I, especially if I start talking about Michelle Bachman. Um, <laughs> stop, just interrupt. <laughs> um, Emptiness. <laughs> so there's there's a the this notion of, of emptiness leads to a couple of a couple of uh, in a couple of directions. There's a, a doctrine that's called the two truths. There's conventional truth, which is the truth of the things of the world that we describe using our language. If I say the car is red. You know, it's true conventionally. We know what we mean by car. We know what we mean by red. Uh, we're using English instead of French. I guess if you used French, it would be different. I'm not. I, I'm not going to try that. <laughs> but if 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 you know the car is red in another language, you can see it's a conventional use of symbols. Ultimate truth is, would be a uh, statement about the final nature of phenomena, the ultimate nature of the way things are. But the trick is that in order to make that kind of a statement, you have to use conventional language. There's no way around it. Although the Zen people get around it, they won't let you use conventional language. <laughs> As they say, this is a pen, I'll smack you. Say, it's not a pen, I'll smack you. Tell me what it is which is why I'm in the Theravadan tradition. <laughs> but ultimate truth, if you state it, if you use conventional terms, ultimate truth is that conventional truth is empty. That's all there is to it. It's really, it's that simple. Ultimate truth is there is no ultimate truth that can be that you can state in 
conventional terms. There's a, people often mistake this doctrine for conventional reality or relative reality and ultimate reality. As if there were a, a reality that was, that transcended our experience. Maybe there is, but how would we know? Because we, our sensorium gives us access to a whole bunch of really transitional experiences. Yeah. We come back to that equilateral triangle and we think, is, is that the same one? Yeah. And then we think of ourselves, is that the same one? It's sort of the same, the sort of the same sort of thing. We really want something permanent, and I th- I think that um, I think it's built in to the organism. I think that there's some biological, you know, as a species, we want to. There, if if individuals didn't have a desire to survive, um, we probably wouldn't be passing on our genes. And those, those critters would have long since been gone. So we come with that. We come with, a, with a, an, an underlying desire to become something. One of the forms of tanha. One of the forms of craving. To be. To be something. But at least to be. No. Um, and one of the other underlying uh, uh, Defilements. One of the deeper defilements is the, the tendency to cling to our views, our thoughts, our perceptions, and the basic distortions of perception. You know, among the aggregates. For those of you who are familiar with the, the aggregates, uh, sanya. The distortions are to see what is impermanent as somehow permanent, to see what is incapable of providing satisfaction as being somehow capable of providing satisfaction, and to see things that have no essence in themselves, there is no selves, there is no things, but to see that as if there are things. The fourth of the, those distortions, by the way, is to see what the unlovely is lovely. Well, we want, we, we don't like this impermanence business. I mean, because, you know, when it comes down to it, it means us. And we sort of, you know, we know that, we know it's on our dance card. But we sort of think, well, I know death is coming, but maybe not me. Now we've all got that. Just we, and we want to cling to something in this onrushing, changing experience. And so we cling to concepts. We cling to ideas. So who do I think I am? Well, there are a couple of different ways of conceptualizing a self. And one of the ways that we do it is um, we think of ourselves, maybe metaphorically, we have an onion view of ourself or of, and of others, of a person, an onion. And there's the outer layers, there are the superficial layers, 
And then there's, you know, the deeper layers and we, till you get to the core of a person, what they're really like, you know. So you can see someone who's nice to their, who's nice to their, their friends and their family and, and they're just wonderful. But five minutes a day, they go home and kick their dog. And we say, well, you know, that looks like a nice person. But I've seen him with his dog really deep down. He's, he's a bad one. Or it could be just the reverse. Someone's grumpy and harsh and nasty all the time, but he goes home and he's nice to his dog. And you say, well, you know, really, ultimately, at the core, he really, he's really a nice guy. He's just misunderstood. I used to say that about J.R. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. But that onion view is really, in, that, that is seeing us as an entity who has qualities. You know, we have a personality, we think. It's the shape of this, oh, I don't know, the metaphors are getting crazy, but it's the shape of the onion. <laughs> There's another way to, to interpret this. And that's, that's uh, another view of, of self that, that may work a little better, and that's self as a ticker tape. And I, I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and they didn't know what a ticker tape was. Anybody not know what a ticker tape is? I'm sorry? A ticker tape, it's, 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 it's so 19th century, I think, or maybe it's, uh, it was a device that allowed the stock market figures to be printed out on little, it's, it, it, you know, it had a print head and it spewed out this, this tape, you know, with the stock prices. So you would, if you ever saw the sting, they were using a, a ticker tape and they would read the, you know, this, as the tape flowed out. And the self is this, is the print head. And the in, in, um, social psychologists George Herbert Mead came up with the notion of, he distinguished between the I and the, and the me. The I being the subjective um, self that is um, appearing in the moment. And the me being the objective self that we uh, think about. So you could say the self in this sense is pure subjectivity. But even to call it pure subjectivity is to make it objective. Okay. But this ticker tape thing is really interesting because as a, as a metaphor, really what's going on is each of us is just an ongoing flow of experience, ongoing flow of behavior. And what we think of often as a quality or a trait is really nothing more than a habit. It's something that arises when conditions are right. Um, you know, it's not, there's no entity that has any qualities. There are repetitive patterns that are conditioned. You, you may notice when you sit down and close your eyes, you get the same story over and over again, or the same set of stories. Jack Cornfield calls it the top 10 list, you know. And, and your, yours is different than mine. You know, sometimes it might be fun to trade off just for the boredom factor, but, um, but the idea is that, that what comes up in our mind is conditioned by 
our experience. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just unfolding. It's just habitual. Which is good news, because it means that it's possible to change. It means change is possible. You know, um, the, the, um, for us, for each of us, in, individually, um, Leela Wheeler pointed out once, I really appreciated this, she pointed out that the Oregon Trail still exists. You know, it's still there. You can Google it and see pictures. The ruts are there and the ground. You can actually and you look like you've been and seen it. It's there. You know, it's an old habit. It's like an old habit. You know, after a while we built the Lincoln Highway, now we call it I-80, and now we don't even use it. We fly over it all. You know, so we've developed new habits. We didn't, you don't have to go back and, you know, obliterate that old stuff. You just start the new. So it makes, it makes change really possible. Just begin cultivating skillful and forget about the unskillful stuff. And that's that's basically what we what we what we do. Self, in this sense, we select a set of experiences off of that ticker tape out of the past in our memory, and we abstract from it and say, "That's me." We don't. If you look at at all the leaves in the world. No two are the same, but if, I, if you want to think of a leaf, you can, you've got an abstraction in your mind that's a leaf. You, you know what a leaf is. You know. And you can look back, you can recollect the Oregon trails in, our, in your life, and you can concoct a story to account for it, or you can actually, you can totally change the story by looking at a different set of by recalling a different set of memories. Any of you see the Ken Burns story, the thing just recently on Prohibition? Well, it's just, for me, it was just, it was stunning because Ken Burns rewrites American history. What's American history? It's a history of drunks. <laughs> really, isn't that what, the, what it was about? Everybody was drunk. Why do you think Prohibition happened? It's hard to get a constitutional amendment passed. It only got passed because everybody was, because so many people were drunk. Really? I mean, that's the, am I wrong? You guys saw it? Isn't that, rewrites American history, you know, by looking at a different set of phenomena. It's a kind of cognitive therapy, or, you know, so we'll rewrite it again. But that's, but self then becomes just a, um, an abstract sampling of, of the experience in our memory. And, and attributing thingness to it. I was, I, was, um, I was thinking this afternoon about this and I thought, and it may, it, this, this thought actually made me giggle because I thought, well, when it comes to, to self, it's all finger and no moon. There's the pointing, but you know, nouns can point. They can point at, 
imaginary things like unicorns and goblins. So, you know, is there such a thing as a goblin? It's, a, it's, it's all finger <laughs> and no moon. You know. The self is the self is just an abstraction. When the Buddha was asked directly, the one time in the canon when the Buddha was asked directly whether there was a self, the guy asked him three times, I think, and he, he didn't answer. And when he went off, Ananda, his attendant, said, how come you didn't answer that guy? And the Buddha said to the effect, it would just confuse him. So self is, is just an abstraction from our experience that is constantly unfolding as, on the, as that ticker tape. And why does it, why, why does it matter? Why should we care? No. Well, I think, you know, if there was something to cling to, then tanha would not be misguided if it pointed at it. You know what I mean? Craving, if there were something permanent, St. <clears throat> Teresa of Avila says, all things are passing, all things are changing. Let nothing affright thee. God alone abides. So if there were some entity like that or some, then cling to that. That would be. But the Buddha said, Anicca, there is nothing outside this constantly changing experiential uh, realm. We sort of, you know, um, uh, Analayo Bhikkhu was here, was up at Gill's last week, and he said, you know, we sometimes sit back and we say, I'll watch the arising and passing of all these things, and there's this sense of all this experience, there's this sense that somehow I'm outside this. There's an, there's a, an awareness, a permanent, you know, pure awareness that, that stands outside. But that's not in the, in the canon. That was, uh, that's not the Buddha's notion. Consciousness, awareness is dependently orig- arisen. It depends on conditions. It arises when the conditions are right and, it, and passes when the conditions are, have changed. So if there were something to cling to, and, and, and in, the, in the Hindu um, uh, tradition, the idea is all this changing stuff is illusion. Don't cling to it. But there is something. You know, there is this permanent thing. The Buddha said, I mean, how would you know if you, with, your, with your sense bases that are so uh, ephemeral, with the data that's so ephemeral? If you brushed up against something permanent, how would you know? Because, you know, the visual field is constantly changing, sound is constantly changing, thoughts certainly don't stay put, that's for sure. You know, um, unless somebody's got something going. Uh, you know, so so the, 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 the idea is that if we are not deluding ourselves about the way things are, we have a chance to not set ourselves up for dukkha. So understanding anatta, the emptiness of self, the emptiness of 
of uh, experiential reality. The Buddha referred to the um, signless liberation of the mind. Signless. That means recognizing that the signs, the symbols that we use, are, are just symbols. They arise and pass just as the rest of the experience. Our, the sixth sense gate is our mind. For the Buddha, there were five, five senses plus the mind. It's the sixth. And the mind is just as transitory, just as ephemeral. So it's actually not that complicated. It's just that we really don't like it. <laughs> and we don't like it for, because it's built into us. I think it comes with the territory. It comes with the organism. You know, it comes genetically. And there's nothing wrong with this tendency to cling. It, it helped the species evolve. It probably has helped us survive. But that doesn't mean that it is, it, it's the way to peace of mind. Peace of mind is not about survival. Peace of mind is about something else. Freedom. Uh, cessation of suffering is, is about something else. So it's, it's in a way, it's, over, it's, it's seeing through the instinctive, reflexive responses that are conditioned and that show up in our behavior. You know, neuroscientists now are, are, are saying that <clears throat> They, well, they can measure, they, they put on the helmets, right? And they can measure the, the instant when an intention to do something arises. And they'll say, you know, with, got, with the helmet on, punch that red button whenever you want in the next five minutes. And they can measure just when that intention appears. And it appears about a tenth of a second before you're aware of it. So, you know, somebody says something and anger will flash before and you go, wow, where did that come from? Anybody have that experience? <laughs> you know? Well, all our experiences that way, it's all conditioned. Our practice is to be able to see that, to learn to be able to see that just as it arises so we don't jump on the unskillful impulses. So, you know, Instead of free will, it's more like free won't. Um, so this, this anatta, this emptiness, is just the ongoing flow of experience. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, let me just... I, I'm... <laughs> Just ask if there's anything unclear about this so far. <laughs> Please. Um, Anatta, yes, no soul. No soul. No soul. No, yeah. No separate, independent entity anywhere. He's, he's, uh, he's, that's what anatta means. And there's nothing wrong with belief. Buddha wouldn't say there's anything wrong with belief. It can lead you into suffering. 
for the Buddha, right and wrong was not the issue. The issue was dukkha or no dukkha. So it doesn't, you know, the Buddha's Dharma doesn't interfere with a belief particularly, although it might suggest that you investigate it to see just what it is you think is a self. You know, in the, in, in the uh, you know, often, often as a meditation object people are given, or a contemplation object, who am I? What is this? You know, so you can look. I mean, what would you, you've got five senses. Are, are you the, the sight? Is this who you are? You know, or the thoughts? Six senses, if you count the mind. Any of these things here, who you are? Anything there permanent? In what way are you the same being that you were when you were 10? You look different. People probably call you the same name, but not always. But, you know, in in however many years it's been, you know, the, the material of your body has totally changed. You certainly see the world differently. Yeah? Oh, that's a great question. That, where, where does the need for liberation come from? I asked, I asked that question of Steve Armstrong once. Steve is way smarter than me. He was doing this whole thing, I'm talking about everything on automatic pilot, which conditions playing, playing themselves out, empty phenomena rolling on. You know. And so I went up to him at a break and I said, Steve, you think you know, all this automatic pilot stuff mean that... Uh, the impulse to awaken is, is proof of intelligent design. And he said, without, without hesitation, he said, yes. Yeah. Ah, it does make a difference. Does it, in other words, does it make a difference what you do? Well, that's pretty easy to check. Just take a hammer and hit your thumb and see whether it makes a difference. You know, um, it, does, it makes a difference what you do. Karma is, is that. Karma is who you turn yourself into. You know, the Buddha said karma is intention. So if you, if you act out a particular habit over and over again, you could say that's who you are, that's just the habit. And you create a tendency to act habitually in that way in the future. So if you're acting in an unskillful way, the tendency will be to be unskillful in the future. Just because that's the you know that's the conditioning. There there um, there are three things that that uh, are necessary. Three conditions that give rise to uh, unskillful behavior. The first is the underlying tendency. Right now, you may not be craving um, pleasant experience. You may be absorbed in thought or you know whatever. But if the conditions were right, if things all of a sudden got twenty degrees colder we'd start thinking. So if the conditions, first there's the underlying tendency, then there are the conditions that, that will, and the absence of mindfulness, so that you don't see the response arising. So it makes a difference what you do, because in fact, it's the only thing that makes a difference, because what you do is what you live with. Your intention is what you have to live with. Let me, let me, let me, um, um, if we have this emptiness, I would say we are this emptiness. And any, any idea about connectedness is an idea. 
we aren't separate from each other at this moment because we're both in each other's perceptual field. But we're not the same either. If I have a stomachache, you don't suffer. If I awaken, you aren't enlightened. So we're separate, but we're, we're not separate. So connectedness is a concept. And, and we tend to seek meaning in the concepts. Um, rather than just seeing simply how things are. So in terms of your question, I don't know. <laughs> what, is, what is the purpose of connectedness? We like to feel connected. We like to feel supported. We feel more secure. We've, and we, we want security. Maybe here, not one, that's what we spend our time trying to do. Get some we, we spend our, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, we spend our time trying to maximize pleasant experience, minimize unpleasant experience, and figure out just how all this relates to me. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. My usual, my usual response when somebody asks that is to say, what makes you think anybody gets reincarnated? There's not an anybody. The Buddha talked about that. There are some scholars who think that the Buddha didn't mean it. Because the Buddha was so incredibly precise in breaking down the, into, into bitsy pieces the, the, the process of, of um, suffering, dependent origination, for example. And he says nothing about the mechanics of rebirth. Okay. Um, it was so embedded in the culture that it would be like uh, not paying homage to scientific truth. To say, to, if I were to start talking about the earth being flat, you guys would think, ah, where's he been? You know. So it's, it's, it's unclear. If there is rebirth, it's not me. Because there isn't an entity here. There's just process. So I've, I've heard many teachers give lots of, make, make lots of effort to um, come up with metaphors, you know, candle flames, and is it the same candle flame? And, and I'm, my answer is, I, I have no idea what's reborn. It's the same thing that's reborn from when you were 10. Whatever is about you the same now that it was when you were 10, that's that's probably it. And then you get Chogyam Trungpa who says, I'm afraid to tell you it's mostly your bad habits. So, <laughs> Karma says, the, the, Buddha said, the Buddha was pretty clear. He said, Karma is intention. Karma is intention. It's the intention that arises. And we are heirs to our karma. You know, I do some, I do some, well, now some he does he does talk about that in different lifetimes. It's unclear to me whether those elements of the canon, you know, twenty five hundred years, including about five hundred years where the where the uh, teachings were passed on orally, uh, remind me sort of like a twenty five hundred year game of telephone. You know, um, where so at the heart is dukkha. And the and the, the four truths, and 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 anicca and anatta. 
the essence of right view. To understand dukkha requires understanding anicca and anatta. What you're left with is your intention. And you live with your intention, and you live with the memory of your intention. I do work in, in uh, at Folsom Prison, and the men there are concerned about, you know, they, they have to live with the memories of what they've done. And there is remorse quite frequently, very profound. And we all have done things that make us cringe to recall what we've done. That's the importance of intention. It was a... Um, any of you see the 60 Minutes show uh, about the people who can remember everything, every moment of their lives? There's a violinist, uh, her name is Louise Owen. Just beautiful, and she, she remembers everything. If you say, what did you have for lunch on April 14th, 1972? She'll tell you. And, and I mean, she, they remember everything. And they, it was a great show. And she said at one point, the, the woman asked her, I guess it was Leslie Stahl, asked her whether she thought this was a blessing or a curse. And one, one of the people who has this condition, and there were half a dozen or ten of them, um, wouldn't show up because she, this person thought it was, it was just a horrendous curse. But Louise said that it's a blessing, she said, because I know that I'm going to remember everything. I make sure that I behave in a way that I know won't leave me suffering in the future. That's karma. You inherit your karma. Even if you can't remember everything. Yeah. You're heir to your karma. It is yourself. Or it is the recollection occurs. And in this landscape, in this landscape of language and memory, we react to it. We respond to the words, to the concepts. Do we like ourselves? Do we not like ourselves? depends on how, what, what kind of an abstraction we make from the, the history, from that ticker tape that's spewed out. So I can, I, can, I, I know you're wanting, to, you're wanting to end. Let me, let me just offer it, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to hang out and, and answer questions. <laughs>